KFBS. Radio 2. Sit with Christopher Lee. And good afternoon to you from a sunny, very sunny spring London town. This is the Sit Rep Roundtable, and you, you are very welcome. In the next hour, nuclear warheads. The gold pens were out in Prague today, but does that make the world a safer place in which to live? Nuclear warheads too. Who's in the nuclear shelter next week? Afghanistan. Why is Karzai at war with his allies? The bombers. Why the bombers are working overtime in Iraq and Pakistan and Pakistan itself. Why the Afghan war is moving to Pakistan. The general election. Why military spending is a dirty word. The Gulf. Why our man in Dubai is just just rubbing by. Peacemaking. Who are the peacemakers and why you only make peace with your enemies? Rags to riches. Here's one. Why water and oil do mix and why China got it right about Albert. Albert will tell you about Albert. And come with us to meet the white ladies of Havana. Well, we start in Prague today. That's where President Obama of the United States and President Medvedev of Russia this lunchtime had what the diplomats call a gold pen affair, i.e. they signed a, a VIT a very important treaty, in this case a new strategic arms limitation treaty. The gold pens were handed out and the two men signed a new document that will or should reduce the numbers of strategic nuclear warheads to 1,500 each or about. On the line, John Isaacs, the executive director of the Centre for Arms Control and Non-Proliferation in Washington. Um, John, the background to this, replacing the 1991 START treaty, which expired uh, last December, so a pretty straightforward occasion. The background really starts much earlier when the two presidents, the United States and Russian president, got back, got together in July last year and pledged to negotiate a new agreement they hoped to finish by last year. And it's a new nuclear reductions treaty, as you say. They have finally completed and finally signed it, although they're still negotiating a few little technical annexes that have to be completed before the treaty is sent to the United States Senate and the Russian Duma. Tell me about the um, um, the numbers. Um, maybe when you're reducing by roughly 30%, um, the numbers don't matter in detail. But, for example, if you take a, take a bomber, a B-52 bomber, I don't know what the weapons load in a, a nuclear weapons load in a B-52 bomber would mean, but would each bomb load be carried separately or would that bomber be classified, for example, as a missile? There are, in all these arms control treaties, there have been uh, unusual uh, counting rules for bombers. And in the current treaty, one bomber will count as having one nuclear weapon, whether it has one or five or 20 cruise missiles. And at least the rationale for that is that uh, uh, actually nuclear weapons aren't mounted on the bombers or in the bombers. They're put in storage, and in crisis they would be put into a bomber. But if you look at a bomber today, it has zero nuclear weapons. So kind of a compromise between the Russians and the Americans in this treaty to count one bomber, one nuclear warhead. On the other hand, the nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic missiles, the longer-range missiles, as well as the missiles at sea on our Trident submarines, and British Trident submarines for that matter, uh, are counted for each warhead does count as one. And when you get into things like multiple uh, reentry vehicles, does that complicate it or is that just uh, allowed? It's allowed on uh, certainly sea-based uh, nuclear missiles. I think the, the, the United States recently pledged to no longer have more than one warhead on land-based missiles. But uh, and in this agreement, there's a very careful counting agreement. And so each warhead, whether it's one or three, and, and let's say there are three warheads on one um, sea-based missile, will count. Each one will count as one. 
John, um, there's, there's another aspect of this, and one which I know you follow extremely closely, and that is ratification. Um, sort of going back, what, uh, 10 years, 11 years to the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, I mean, that was defeated, wasn't it, ratification in the Senate? Yes, uh, you look at the bad news, I'll look at the good news. The last two nuclear reductions treaties in the United States Senate have been approved overwhelmingly with more than 90 out of 100 votes. But as uh, you're suggesting, a, a treaty requires 67 votes according to the United States Constitution, the U.S. Senate. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was defeated in 1999. We don't think and we certainly hope that this treaty doesn't suffer the same fate. Okay, we, let's, can we shift to next, uh, is it next week in, in, in Washington with the two-day conference on nuclear uh, weaponry? Who's going to be there? Uh, about 47 countries, the leaders of 47 countries, I believe, including your prime minister, will be here for this meeting. It's a meeting called by President Obama to focus on the issue of nuclear terrorism and how to safeguard nuclear weapons and nuclear materials across the globe. It's a declaration also... In, in some ways, at the, um, the broader issues of nuclear weaponry. Um, there is always an anticipation that, um, if you like, terrorists could get hold of it in some form. But then there are some who are politically nervous, would, for example, uh, cite Iran or North Korea as falling into that category of the wrong people to have nuclear weapons. Well, I'd uh, argue more broadly that uh, any country having nuclear weapons are wrong countries, and that includes the United States and the United Kingdom. But that, putting that aside, uh, for, for many decades during the Cold War, the major focus was on the huge nuclear weapon stockpiles of both the United States and then the Soviet Union and then Russia. And, uh, and the treaty just signed uh, today uh, moves in the direction of reducing those stockpiles. But the president, President Obama said today, and, uh, and I think the Russian prime minister said the same, the real focus should not be on the nuclear weapon stockpiles of the former superpowers, but rather nu uh, nuclear weapons in the hands of terrorists and the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries. I mean, we've seen many terrorist uh, attacks, obviously the London subways a few years ago, uh, in Moscow most recently in their subway, in Bali, Indonesia, in so many places across the globe. Uh, the terrorists are, are on the move and trying to uh, uh, hurt a lot of people, kill a lot of people. If the terrorists manage to get a nuclear weapon instead of the conventional explosives that they've used, the hundreds or thousands of casualties could easily be in the hundreds of thousands or millions. And that's what I think President Obama is pointing to, saying we have to have an international effort, a, a global cooperation to try to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, both to countries like Iran but also to terrorist groups. John Isaacs, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's John Isaacs, who's the executive director of the Centre for Arms Control and Non-Proliferation. Well, with me at the SIPREP Roundtable, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail and a veteran uh, of gold pen affairs, John Dickey, from the University of Salford, by bus, Professor Eric no, Grove. by train, actually, because there wasn't a strike. Oh, it wasn't a strike, so Eric came by. Eric Grove, that is, Professor Eric Grove. <laughs> and the director of the RUSI here in London, Professor Michael Clark. Not by train. Um, uh, Michael, the treaties reflect, don't they, the state, or they used to in um, Cold War days, the, the state of relations between the two major signatories. Um, so when we assess an, an agreement like this, is it still that important? 
It still is, actually. I mean, we, we always used to have this old phrase, you know, when arms control is possible, it's not necessary, and when it's necessary, it's not possible. Yeah. So when you can have a treaty, you're, you're signing something that doesn't really mean very much. But the fact is that nuclear weapons stand at the apex of all weapons for all sorts of reasons. They represent technological prowess, which is why so many countries want to become nuclear. And when the two biggest nuclear powers, Russia and America, agree to go firmly down the road of reducing weapons, of restricting them, then it has a knock-on effect to all sorts of other arms control deals. And when you look at the history of arms control, when nuclear arms control is going well, then other sorts of arms control go well, over conventional weapons, over uh, anti-personnel landmines, all sorts of things. When they're not going well, then it usually means that relations are bad for other reasons as well. So, uh, John Dickey, if we look forward uh, to two things, one is the 3rd of May, I think, the opening mm. of the Non-Proliferation mm. Treaty Review Conference. That's important that you've got the two major nuclear uh, superpowers uh, agreeing at the moment that they should be thinking in the same way. Indeed, and you've got many more than them. Uh, we've got 47 turning up from Algeria at the beginning of the alphabet but to Vietnam at the end of the alphabet. The one absentee is probably the British Prime Minister, um, Mr Gordon Brown, because I think he is more concerned with the proliferation of votes in this country than the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. But there is a slight cloud over it all, despite uh, what's happened today, and I don't want to sound sour, but uh, Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Minister, did sound a little warning note uh, before the signing that uh, it would depend upon the missile plans of the United States uh, in Europe. Uh, if, if they were to go ahead, that would uh, possibly allow the, the Russians to withdraw a, a bit from the, the final ratification. This is the small premise yeah. that um, the Russians are still very concerned about the defensive missile shield. And throughout the history of nuclear arms control, on the one hand, it's been limiting defences, and on the other hand, limiting offensive forces. And the two go together, because if you have defences, then clearly you need a f more offensive sy uh, systems to get through. I can quite see the American interest in getting this treaty, in the sense that the Russians have got many more thousand nuclear warheads apparently in service at the moment than, than the than the Americans have. The Americans are coming down from about what two and a half to three thousand active warheads to about fifteen hundred. The Russians are coming down from actually rather twice that number to fifteen hundred. So clearly the Americans have a considerable interest in this w w which they would like to hold the Russians to. But I can see the small print could well be there and it might be a problem so but still it's a good sign nuclear arms control is as we've heard the most important aspect of the whole arms control procedure and it shows that russia american relations are pretty good at present mike um in in the cold war the stumbling block apart from ratification of, of, of any treaty the stumbling block wasn't it was was verification that yeah, the yeah. other side was going to stick how do you know the other side isn't cheating that's yeah, right that was always and, the issue. Yeah. yeah i mean even to the extent with i think it was the mx missile when they were they had that at, was it lathrop wells in that's or something right. like yeah, that yeah. and they used to alter the tire pressures yes yeah. so that you think it was loaded when it wasn't it was a dummy i mean crazy things all sorts like of things that. you can do yeah to, to but yes. is that is that important any longer? Well, it's politically important. Those who don't like arms control or don't like any particular treaty, they always bang on about the verification and say, this cannot be verified. We can only be 95% certain and 5% uncertainty is too great. But lots of things come into this. Verification is only an, is only an issue if, if one side is cheating systematically and getting away with it over a number of years. So actually, the, the reality of verification is that you, you don't need 100%. You probably don't need, don't need more than about 50%, even less than that. But against that, the easiest number to verify is zero. 
Once you allow more than zero of any weapon system, well, where is it? Uh, have you reclassified it? Are you doing something else with it? How do we know that your, uh, your uh, holdings, what you tell us, you, you may be making honest mistakes about the numbers. So the, the, it becomes a sort of theology all of its own. And you're right to say, I mean, verification is a, is a little industry uh, yeah. within the arms control. Well, it certainly country. was in 2003, wasn't Absolutely. it? In, Absolutely in right. But to make... But, but the mere fact that the other side has to at least appear to conform is an important constraint on their actions. Yes, yes. And that's the point. When, when people get, get, go, get really excited about verification, it usually means they don't like the treaty at all. So they're trying to find ways in which it's unacceptable. But verification doesn't need to be very complete. It's only got to detect massive, systematic cheating over a long period. Yeah, it's when, not when numbers you, as it comes. It's, 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 it's not numbers. It's, it's about behaviour over a long period. It's like the pocket battleships in yeah, the late the, 20s and the early yeah, 30s. Yeah, the Germans did it. The Germans did it in the 20s and 30s. They actually hid material on a systematic basis. Uh, and the system, the international system, wasn't able to detect it for many years. But, but, to make a ship appear to be 10,000 tonnes... It couldn't be much more than twelve or 13,000 tonnes, mm-hmm. so therefore it was a heavily constrained design anyway. Yeah. So, well, this is not just a question about the, the major powers, the, the, the powers that have got nuclear forces or that uh, would admit they've got nuclear forces. One of the main problems is what the Americans call the, the loose nukes. These are the, the nukes that have got to be tracked down because they might fall into the hands of terrorists. Tell me, um, where does this leave, uh, Michael Clark? where does this leave the United Kingdom's nuclear deterrent? Because mm. it strikes me that in the Cold War, we knew that we, knew we had them, we knew we could appoint at major cities like High Street Moscow, or we could appoint to military ins- installations. That's mm. what you did with them, didn't yep. Who do we target now? Makes them, this arms control regime that we're moving towards makes British weapons more relevant because during the Cold War, whenever we talked about tactical nuclear weapons, we said, no, oh, no, ours are not tactical, ours are strategic. Mm. And then when we started to talk about strategic nuclear arms control, we said, no, no, ours are not strategic, they're tactical. <laughs> and so we were able to define our weapons away from wherever the treaty was. But the point is, if the, if the two major nuclear powers are coming down to weapons of around about 1,500 or so, and maybe subsequently lower than that, then the fact that we've got getting on for 200 becomes a relevant number. It's not a trivial number anymore. And so our our system, the French system, about the same level, the Israeli system, uh, the Chinese system, these numbers together add up to about the the, the number of of weapons that uh, the United States or the Russians have. So these minor nuclear systems become relevant once the numbers start to get low. And Trident D5 is very accurate. It has, a ra- it, it has a CEP of only a few sort of 100, 100 metres. Mm. And so you can fire a low-yield warhead. And currently, as we speak, probably probably two of the missiles mm. in the Vanguard-class submarine cruising around out there in the Atlantic are probably single warhead, low-yield yeah, warheads. Who are they pointing at? Whoever mm. is a problem, whoever uses... Now, now here we come to the... Well, intro- we come to the Obama thing. We don't uh, point them yes, at people with that. And, and I was about to raise that. Here we come to the very interesting thing about the Obama change in doctrine, that if you deploy a chemical weapons against American forces, we won't go nuclear. If we deploy biological, we might. If you deploy nuclear, we shall. So we British, and indeed the French have also said that if you deploy weapons of mass uh, destruction, uh, defined as chemical or biological, against their forces, then we might go nuclear. It's a very interesting difference in doctrine, actually, between ourselves and the French on one side and the Americans on the other. Except that the Americans make allowances for what they call a catastrophic uh, assault by biological, biological weapons, that's and exactly that's right. to get yes. out. Then they go turn nuclear. 
Right. But when you say who are they pointing at, hmm. in a purely technical sense, they're pointing at nobody. They are de-alerted. Hmm. So at one time, they, we know that they were locked on targets in Eastern hmm. Europe with the option of being relocked onto Moscow. Hmm. That was the British target set, was always Moscow. The NATO target set, which they carried yep. at any other time, were targets in Eastern Europe, troop hmm. concentrations and, and military installations. As of now, in theory, they are targeted literally straight up in the air. So you've actually got... You've got I, to target the yeah. weapons. I mean, I, because our weapons are now de-targeted. Yeah. no one and everyone. Oh, my well, goodness. Well, if they go straight up in the air, they come back down on the submarine. <laughs> Sounds like Ian Fleming, doesn't it? Listen, can you imagine the Piwo sitting in one of these bombers with his tom-tom... <laughs> trying to work... Oh, no. Oh, believe me. It'll come with a release order. In a conflict, that's been done. I mean, there's a famous case of an American air controller in in Afghanistan who was tapping in coordinates as a forward air controller, and he was so tired after 36 hours without sleep, he tapped in his own coordinates, Mm. targeted himself. Good gracious, yes. Is he still with us? It'll it'll come with a release order. I mean... Okay, we all come with a release order. Uh, the release order at the moment, current at the moment, is the general election in this uh, country, in the United Kingdom. It's on 6th of May, as some may have heard. Last week, here at the Separate Roundtable, the chairman of the All-Party Common Select Committee of Defence said quite clearly that Sir uh, James Arbuthnot said quite clearly that he did not expect defence to be a defence issue or an issue at the election. Well, why not? The man who knows the politics of this, the BBC... World Service political correspondent and recently their defence correspondent, Rob Watson. Rob, uh, defence not in the debate? Well, hello, Christopher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you gave me the big build-up there, but I've got to say, listening to that genuine expertise that was oozing out from around the table about disarmament <laughs> oh, issues, I'm, uh, <laughs> I could hear my... will get you nowhere. <laughs> no, but it's quite true. Now, OK, let me, uh, <laughs> let me stick my neck out on this one, although I don't think it is very... Uh, it's not much of a sticking-out job on this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'd stick pretty much to the idea that I don't think defence and foreign policy will be a huge or decisive factor. That said, and and I think it's worth pointing this out, let's not forget that the second of the three prime ministerial debates will be at least half of it on foreign and defence-related issues. That's the the second debate, which I think is in Bristol in uh, sort of 10 day, two weeks' time. So it's not going to be completely ignored, is it? No, and it's likely to to concentrate on maybe Iraq, Afghanistan, as far as defence is concerned, not to the... I get the impression that, that the truth is that neither... Neither of the two main parties know how to approach it. I mean, the public are pro-troops, but maybe not pro-big spending items such as Trident. Well, I'm sure that James Arbuthnot would have maybe mentioned that when he was with you last week, because he certainly told it, said it to me in private several times that... Uh, that you know, if you do any kind of polling research, or you just go and ask people on the street, do you are you in favour of uh, of British forces? Oh yes, everybody says definitely, definitely. Do you think they should be given all the resources they need? Oh, definitely, definitely. Would you rather spend money on hospitals or on uh, defence? They go hospitals. Mm. So you see, the difficulty of presentation, I think, in in general elections. General elections are about shouting slogans, aren't they? They're the the ones that you, that you remember. Div- Defence debates really make slogan sense, unless you support, say, the Lib Dems who don't want Trident. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, think that, you know, I think that gets the nail on the head, Christopher. I, I suspect there's something else involved too, and, uh, and again, I've heard this from people on the Defence Committee and in the Armed Forces, that, that in a way, 
you know, it's partly that we just don't feel as though we're living in truly threatened times. Now, I'm not diminishing in any way the threat from Islamic extremism, violent Islamic extremism, all the kind of issues that we're dealing with in Afghanistan. But I don't think it's got people worked up in, in quite the way that there have been other moments in our history. And, and it's been said to me by politicians in private. They've said, look, you know, Rob, we're not going to ever be involved in a serious discussion about defence or increasing defence spending unless the UK is under attack. I mean, that is what politicians from both sides have said to me in private. Right. Rob Watson, in public. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> mm. um, there's a point, isn't it, uh, Mike Clark? What would create an issue in the election? An event, a, a catastrophe, presumably? Yeah, I, I mean, something that may happen abroad, and obviously Afghanistan is on all our minds, something like that um, might reverberate back in the election or possibly a terrorist attack. Uh, that suddenly dominates the electioneering for four or five days. But it, unless there's a particular event, the actual structure of you know what the election is about in defence terms isn't going to be talked about very much. And it's all going to come down to management. Who is the more competent on defence? Not who's got better ideas about what we should do with defence, but who is the more competent? And so the government will say, look, you know, we've been competent on defence, we've, we've, we've operated in these constrained circumstances, we've delivered X and Y. And the opposition are going to say, you know, you guys have messed it up, you've left our forces overstretched and under funded and we are more competent on defence. That's what it's going to be all about. I would disagree there. I think John. it was an interesting that the first two questions in Prime Minister's question time yesterday was the electoral atmosphere at its height. First two questions from David Cameron were on defence. The first one was on the helicopter supply and the second one was on the Prime Minister lying to the Iraq inquiry. Now, I think this uh, whole election campaign is going to get more and more personal. And the way to get it, Gordon Brown, from the Tories' point of view, is to say that he did not honour his obligations to the armed forces. That's yeah, but that's what I mean, is who can handle defence? Mm, Who's got yeah. the honour to handle defence? That's mm. a fair point. I mean, the whole, the whole sort of helicopter thing, if you know about it, is a, a non-issue, really. Because it's all huge numbers of things which no Conservative frontbencher could even possibly imagine, except possibly Liam Fox. But the... The um, uh, there seems to be a pretty con much of a consensus on defence. Actually, the Conservatives and Labour don't disagree that much. Mm. Uh, they appear to want to keep the general shape of our defence posture the way it is. The only people who don't agree with the consensus are the Lib Dems on Trident, which is one reason I won't vote for mm. them. And, 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 uh, the, <laughs> and their attitude towards European defence. There, yeah. there, there are some real differences between the Lib Dems and the other two parties. But there is an element in the Conservative Party, growing all the time, I think, by senior figures like Lord Howe, was the former Foreign Secretary, beginning to question the uh, renewal of the Trident. Right. Now, listen, next Wednesday... Uh, next Wednesday, uh, that's the... Is that the 14th? It is, isn't it? The 14th. 14th. Next Wednesday, the 14th, you can hear a special programme on BFBS um, on the defence debate. It's uh, British Forces' new special and the Secretary of State for Defence, Bob Ainsworth, and he, as a minister, will still be Secretary of State, um, will be joined by Dr Liam Fox from the Conservatives and Paul Keach from the Lib Dems. And they'll be at the British Army Museum in London uh, taking questions. So shall we. So next Wednesday, 14th of April, you can watch it on BFBS TV at 5.30pm, and then BFBS DAB, 6.30pm. And, of course, you want to get a perfect take on it here on Radio 2, BFBS Radio 2 at 6 o'clock. Well, I think there's one other thing we have to consider, is that the debate is likely to centre on certainly Afghanistan, Mike Clark. Mm. 
Why is it that Afghanistan seems to be falling apart politically? Because President Karzai, even if it's only for domestic mm. um, publication, is really sort of giving everybody else a fanging. Yeah. It, uh, the point is that the, the military offensive, Operation Mostarak, and the offensive that is going to begin pretty soon now in Kandahar City, will be basically successful. It's not cost-free in human or material terms, but it will be successful. But if the military is completely successful, that's still only 20% of the whole answer. And the other 80%... As General David uh, McChrystal. McChrystal has said, yeah. And the other 80% is all political. And the problem is that since last November, the the inauguration of Mm. Karzai for a second term, he just about said the things that needed to be said in his inauguration speech in November, and then has done precious few of them since. And when he came here at Westminster... Yeah. sort of, it was lip service, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and as people in Afghanistan, when you talk to them, say, they, they say you know, his, his tactics are to get through to the end of the meeting, and his strategy is to get through to the end of the week. Uh, and I was in Islamabad a couple of weeks ago, and, and people are fairly sober about the, the prospects of political reform in Afghanistan. So there's a great deal to be done, and the danger is that the military offensive will have, have been for too little, not for nothing, but for too little when it get, comes to the end of the year. Unless there is some real political take-up by the other end of the summer, by the, by the late yeah. summer for the rest of the year, then we'll be looking at the same situation again next year, having lost another 12 months with Taliban gains. But there's no, there's no John, sign yet of any uh, attempt by Karzai in Kabul to clean up the corruption in Kabul, in Kandahar, because his brother is still there, the, the drug lord, and he's still governor there and has all the sort of influence that is a deterrent to the re-establishment of, of stable government. Of course, Kandahar me- is where... Uh, Taliban started. Mm. This reminds me. This reminds me very much of Vietnam in the 1960s, where we have a leader who was then called ZM, who Mm. we didn't like. So the Americans, well, the Americans didn't like him, so he was overthrown. Um, Karzai is an Afghan leader. He rules in an Afghan way, in a very corrupt kind of way, and this creates enormous problems for the Western powers who are backing him up. Mm. Because if you want to say you're backing an Afghan leader, well, Karzai is the best one we've got. He's not perfect, but but nonetheless, he's he's our boy. Yeah, remember that since the end of the monarchy in Afghanistan. Afghanistan in 1973, there have been seven presidents. Mm. Four of them have been murdered. <laughs> one died in exile. One lives in exile, and Karzai is the seventh. Exactly. So it's not a great job security sort of role. Mm. Um, and you know, Karzai himself is—it's <laughs> not an easy job for anyone to do. Tell me, Mike, you were in—you um, were saying you were in uh, Islamabad a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Pakistan is going through it at the moment, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the bombers are out in. Well, yes, it's got it's got a war on three fronts. I mean, there, there is there is the war in the in the northern tribal areas. There's a, there's a revolt in Baluchistan, and then there is internal problems in in Lahore, in Islamabad, in Karachi. I mean, Karachi is is said is, is becoming a, a jihadist city now. That the, there is a, I mean, I think that may be a bit harsh, but the fact is, a, a lot of Al Qaeda and Taliban uh, leaders have moved out of Quetta. And they've gone to Karachi, mm-hmm. where they can exist fairly happily. So Pakistan is is it's on the brink of much bigger crises. I don't think it'll fall apart. People say yeah, Pakistan's going to fall to pieces. It never does quite fall to pieces, but it's on the brink of much worse crises. And the, and the atmosphere in Islamabad a couple of weeks ago was completely different to what it was six months before that. It's 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 full of checkpoints. It's not as bad as Kabul, but it, there, there are checkpoints. There are, there are there are restrictions. There is a sense of of insecurity throughout the city. It's, a, it's almost as if as a big chunk of the war has moved from Afghanistan into Pakistan. Yeah, it's a different war, of course, but, yeah. but the, fact, the fact is South Asian instability is now uh, spreading, and Afghanistan is, if you like, is the western flank 
of that South Asian civil war which is breaking out across South Asia. It's also in, in Kashmir, in other parts mm. of India. There's a, you know, Sri Lanka is not really at peace. Um, there's a, the big, big problems in South Asia. Voting today in Sri Lanka, John, or is it this weekend? Um, and they're not, as, as Mike says, not really yet at peace, even though they've got no, a no. peace agreement. No, I, I, and you've got the main opposition uh, candidates still locked up. I mean, it, it's a situation where the winner takes all. Yeah, and India... Um, With uh, the Naxalites, yes. The Naxalites, the, the, the Maoists... About 127,000 mm. at the front line, apparently. That's quite it's a big mm. Although India's a pretty big place, so you consider a billion mm. people. Yeah. But even so, no, no, it's important. And throughout the centre and the northeast and, and the eastern side of India, you have a very powerful group, which reflects the bit of India that we tend not to recognise. When we think of India, we think of Mumbai and Bollywood and Delhi and the India that is going places. But sadly, there are a very large number mm. of Indians who are not going places. The 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 uh, the uh, um, the untouchables, other lower class people, and they look to the Naxalites as a possible way of liberating themselves. So therefore, there is a major insurgency. How India will react to this is a big, big question. Can we talk about, the, I mean, just thinking about the insurgencies or counter-terrorism, the word from Washington is that the CIA has ordered the capture or the killing, yes, the assassination of the radical Muslim cleric Anwar al-Wallaki. The last time we heard of him, he was in Yemen. On the line, John Marks, the editor-in-chief of Cross-Border Information. What's the threat from this guy? Is he the fellow that was um, supposedly behind the Fort Hood shootings last November? He was um, named as um, one of the uh, intellectual backers. He, of course... um is of American origin and uh, brought up in the legalist tradition, uh, denies everything. Um, so um, even though um, some of his actions seem to make him uh, a sort of Islamist uh, poster boy, he, he doesn't want to be seen as a, for obvious reasons, as a significant uh, player in Al-Qaeda. But he does seem to be someone the Americans have got their teeth into. And the huge industry in security and jihadism in the United States has uh, got him as someone that they uh, that that's in their sights. And the administration, from President Obama himself downwards, are uh, responding. You see, because he's an American citizen, presumably the CIA, and this is quite a remarkable sort of declaration. You know, we're going to either capture him or kill him. Um, the CIA had to go to the National Security Council uh, to get permission to sort of do this. Uh, they would. And um, what's um, really tantalising is we're looking at Yemen um, coming on nine years after 9-11. We're hearing virtually exactly the same things about Yemen, all this stuff that's coming out that al-Qaeda may now be basing themselves in the country and it's a security threat and the Americans are having to listen again to uh, President Ali Abdullah Saleh who will be asking them for the same equipment that he was asking for for the best part of the decade. Um, that all these things are, are, are coming back to, um, to haunt us and the Obama language surrounding um, people such as uh, Anwar al-Laki um, is uh, remarkably um, similar to that, to the man that he was supposed to be diametrically opposite to, um, Mr. George W. Bush. And they're not just going after Anwar uh, Olaki, are they? Because the, the, the Americans have got agency people in, uh, in Yemen itself. This is, a, this is a, a long-running narrative, Chris. I think if, if, you, if you look at it, even before 9-11, clearly there were big concerns about Yemen. Remember, it was in Yemen that the USS Colt 
were, mm. was was attacked by a jihadist uh, a jihadist boat with explosives on it. So it's a, it's a long history. After 9/11, Ali Abdullah Saleh, one of the the Middle East great military security Arab nationalist survivors, you know, he he got over having Saddam Hussein as his his best friend. He survived that. He survived the various. Uh, jihadist and other uprisings in his country. At the moment, after all, he has a secession movement in the south. He has um, a, a civil war of real violence going on in the north that's got the Saudis involved. And he's got uh, the group that's now called um, Al-Qaeda in the um, Arabian Peninsula. So Saleh's a big survivor. He's done business with the Americans before. He doesn't like doing it publicly because it plays very badly at home. But we've had uh, American and indeed British special forces um, in, in, in Saleh's Yemen in, in the past decade. And it seems that every time the, the international jihadist threat rises, every time there's an incident, um, the, the famous Nigerian pants bomber in December, of course, being linked to, um, to, to, to Yemen, that Saleh comes back, the Americans start talking tough, people look for action in Yemen, um, the jihadists and probably other opposition groups get quite badly hit, Things then go quiet. Um, the Allies realise that Saleh is not a very uh, is is not really the sort of person they want to do business with, and we all retire hurt until the whole problem rises up again onto the global news agenda. John Marks, thank you very much for that. Um, and tell me, um, Michael Clark, there is real politique in the sort of war on terrorism internationally anyway. You can have as many gold pen affairs as you like in uh, Prague or Moscow or Washington. That's what we're doing every single day of the week, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The thing is that the world is not greatly troubled by traditional international war, um, but it is enormously troubled by disorder. This is actually a... It's not a particularly um, a dangerous world compared to the world of the 20th century. And it's in a statistical sense, the 21st century so far is statistically reasonably safe. Um, but it is a very disordered world. And in certain parts of the world, of course, your life chances are not very good at all. I was doing some, some work uh, only uh, this week on uh, numbers of, of deaths from war and disorder. I mean, the number of deaths from international war since 1991 is less than 200,000. The number of deaths from international disorder since 1991, is at least five and a half million. Mm. Right. Uh, we're late. It's coming up to 37 minutes past the hour, what that means. It's, um, you're listening to SITREP with me, Christopher Lee, and if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into SITREP at bfps.com and clicking on Listen Again. Still with me at the SITREP Roundtable, the director of the RUSI, Professor Michael Clark, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and from the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. John, China. Now, this is the, this, this is, this is the, the clever dick stuff. Why <laughs> does water and oil mix? And why China got it right about Albert, or to be more exact, Lake Albert? Explain. Well, China's always got it right about Africa. They were very quickly into the Tanzan Railway from Zambia to Tanzania. Um, they burnt their fingers a little bit by uh, offending the, the, the locals a great deal. But then they got into the Sudan. They got a pipeline running from... 
Malakal in the south to Port Sudan and the Gulf. And they've been moving all over Africa, getting their oil reserves. And uh, the latest is in Uganda, where on the shores of Lake Albert with... Uh, that's Jan- a good old yeah. imperial name, isn't All it? Lake Albert. Albert. Great. It's King yeah. Albert, isn't it? Isn't That's it. it. Yes. And, uh, and uh, the Congo and uh, Uganda uh, have got great hopes of, of getting something like $2 billion a year by the year 2015, uh, just to change the whole lifestyle. Uh, the great pity is that the man in charge, Museveni, has been there for 28 years and is an old-fashioned dictator, and how he spreads that wealth is one of the main problems He's of the area. He's going to get stinking rich, isn't he? He's going to get very rich. And, and the same in Ghana. Ghana, you see, used to rely on cocoa and gold. Now it's uh, it's got offshore oil there, challenged, I admit, by the Ivory Coast, but it's going to get something like reserves of $800 million of oil. I mean, this changes the whole pattern of living in, in, in Africa. Mm. And, and it I, also has implications for the Indian Ocean, too. Why? Because if China wants to communicate with its sources of oil across the Indian Ocean, it's going to have to worry a lot about the sea lines of communication across the Indian Ocean. Well, isn't Ocean. it setting up ports in, isn't port in That's Sri Lanka? Right. Exactly, mm. the string of pearls, as it's called. And this is going to bring it into direct confrontation with India. Watch this space. That was a Glenn Miller, Glenn Miller number, wasn't it? String of power. Yeah, listen, uh, talking about changing sort of faces, um, the opposition in Kyrgyzstan, we're just hearing um, uh, at about half past four, um, saying it has dissolved parliament and has taken power. Um, Mike, if I were an American running an air base, I might be concerned about I'd Kyrgyzstan. i some alternative uh, routes in. And some Except that the opposition basis. have said they're going to keep it going, and they've got this central committee and realise that they'll need to get some... But this, can we explain will. where this air, what the importance of this airbase is? It's a supply base yes, into yes. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, which yes. uh, the Americans have relied heavily Former on. Soviet Central Asia. Mm. This is a good old-fashioned revolution, as I said mm. to my wife last night when I first heard of it. This is classic. You get people coming mm. out, they're shot at, they don't like it. You sound like, like Rob Wilton, as I said to my wife the other <laughs> day, <laughs> the day well, the war on, broke out. Yeah, so exactly. you got anything better to talk about than no, revolutions in Central Asia? Yes. No. The, uh, I mean, didn't uh, the, watch the <laughs> No, but I mean, but it's absolutely classic. Here we have, here we have have demonstrations, they get shot at, they get angry, they go against the police, they take over. They're it's damn a classic revolution. Well, aren't they? well, you tend to get revolutions in countries like oh, that if you're not careful. Okay, Let's talk about revolutions. Let's talk about how, how do you get peace in those revolutions. Um, the key to all peace talking and the need to talk peace is the fact you do it through enemies. You don't do it through your friends. And that's why the results perhaps can be very, very fragile indeed. Well, on the line, someone who's made a particular study of peacemaking, especially in her book, Kings of Peace, Harriet Martin. Harriet, welcome. Um, Thank you. Where where can peace brokers go where the antagonists themselves can't go? Um, uh, The short answer would be where they're invited. They're not normally invited. It depends, actually, first of all, which type of peace broker you're thinking about. Um, because they come in all sorts and shapes and sizes. So a U.S. envoy will probably be the sort of peace broker that will have formal meetings and be accepted by the rebel group and the government equally, as would a U.N. envoy. But there's a whole kind of growing industry of private peacemakers, who, some of whom, like um, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva, who spend many months and possibly years hanging out with rebels in the jungle or the desert, gaining their trust in order to help them create a kind of platform 
with which to engage peacefully with the government rather than violently. You see, I was thinking about uh, Taliban, obviously, um, and you get this idea that during the past few weeks there have been all sorts of uh, stories sculling around that, oh, they shouldn't have captured that guy or they've let that Taliban out because it's all to do with the peace process that's going on where you're going to have to talk to your enemies. Yes, I mean, the Taliban's interesting because what it exposes is there's a lot of competition in the peacemaking industry to get hold of the, the really difficult ones like the Taliban, and there was a lot of dismay amongst certain other diplomats when Coyote came out and claimed that he had been talking to the Taliban and other diplomats that I'd spoken to said, no, no, but he didn't really speak to the real Taliban. And, and so um, it's a competitive field for the peacemaker, um, Afghanistan, but also a deeply frustrating one. I was I was quite in, interested in particular um, hearing you talking about examples of, um, or one of the best examples of peacekeeping, uh, when you said Israel would be up there in, let's say, the top five. Oh, <laughs> what, and the point I was actually making is in terms of clever governments. And of the three cleverest governments in negotiation, because negotiation is what the parties do, it's what the government does, it's what the rebels do, and the person in the middle is doing the mediation, and it's an important but sometimes slightly grey distinction. So if you look at the Israeli government, I mean, they are just extraordinarily clever negotiators, and they're always able to keep the upper hand with both the Americans and certainly, of course, the Palestinians. Right. Um, want to stay, stay, stay there, because I want to bring others in. Uh, Mike, if I go back to the... Um the Sudan, uh, Sadat, sorry, the Sadat and Begin uh, peace meeting uh, on the Rose Lawn, the declaration, the end of the confrontation between Egypt and Israel. Yes. Um, sometimes we forget it was Carter's, uh, President Carter's role in that. It all seemed to me that it was, it was astonishing, this, this mild-mannered president had well, brought these people together. Yes, well, very often, I mean, the thing about peacemaking is that there's normally, there's a moment when it's possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you've got to give credit to various people in the world who can recognise when that moment might be arriving. And very often the people who can then have the power to make peace have been previously the war makers. Very often it's it's, it's the right wingers, it's the conservatives mm-hmm. who can who can pull their conservative supporters along and make the peace that the liberals can't make. Um, so there's a moment, there's a, there's a time when, when war makers become peacemakers, and then, yes, you, you give credit to President Carter, there, there are the peace facilitators, of the sort of people that Harriet's talking about, who have the ability to be the go-between, to, to facilitate that last few percent that needs to be talked about before the big, the big guns get together. As some, the people as who have the power to deliver, John, for example, take the Cyprus negotiations at Zurich in 1959, the Cyprus problem was such that it defied solution by the British colonial power. But you had uh, the two major external powers, the Turks and, and the Greeks. You had uh, Zolu on the Turkish side, you had a Vivera of Tsitsa on the Greek side. And they got together in such a way that they made it impossible for their clients, the uh, Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, to refuse. Mm. As someone who's done a bit of mm. this in the past with my naval talks that I started between Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States in 1988. The key point is to seize the moment. It was quite clear that the Soviets were very concerned that there was no discussion at all about naval matters. There was discussion about air and land matters. But clearly within the debate in, this, in Moscow, it was important there should be some kind of discussion about naval matters. So one had the contacts 
and one started a back-channel discussion. And that evolved into a, you know, into, into a, an upfront discussion between the various countries as things improved. But the thing to do is to seize the moment, as we've heard, and if you've got the contacts, and I was lucky enough to have those, to get the people together to talk mm. on a back-channel, not official potentially deniable this was not you know something that was an, an official government governmental thing but it was something that got back to the people mm. harriet really um here we've got the the contrast and that is that we see for example in afghanistan and everybody's looking around how do we end this confrontation if you have a, a state-to-state war you can say right that lot obviously won. Now we'll negotiate a settlement. It's the quiet negotiating, the ones that you're talking about that become fascinating, the ones, the guys that are in the bush and the jungle for maybe years, years, and eventually bring people together. Absolutely. And one of their most, um, the great difficulties that any peacemaker finds himself in is that because the wars we talk about are civil war, they're within a state, you have one legal um, party at the table, and that's the government however appallingly they may be seen to behave in, in the eyes of the international community. And you have the illegal party at the table, which are the rebels. And so there are all sorts of actual uh, legal questions in, in getting these people to engage because the government may well feel they should just arrest the people on the other side of the table. Is it also a question of when one side is exhausted, you've got to find a way of uh, not necessarily using that exhaustion, but actually making sure they feel okay about coming to the table? I, I think that's a very good point, and a couple of points to be made as, as, as crucial as this issue of the moment. Um, and, and, and there is a sort of a kind of understood theory that you have to choose the moment when it's in the interest of both sides to be at the table rather than on the battlefield. And that's an incredibly delicate and unclear moment. Is it a big industry? Growing. Growing. I'm not sure it'll grow much more because my sense is that um, that the heady days of the 1990s, when when there was a superpower and and, and liberal democracy to spread, are kind of over now. Um, and so I think it'll become a, a quieter industry and a more sophisticated one, which does much more back-channel work and less of the showy kind of White House lawn stuff that we've seen. And when you think about the situation in the Middle East, it may well be on Obama's agenda to get a peace deal there. But I can't see a convincing argument that it's really in the interest of this particular Israeli government to sign a deal under Obama. And I think they're going to struggle desperately to get one. You've spent some time working in the United Nations. The United Nations Agency is uh, good at peace, peace, peace brokering. Oh, that's a very good question. I think, you know, for me, in the end, it comes down to individuals. So in my book, what I do is I focus very much on different individuals and their individual approach, and there's certainly there's only one person in the book that's in the UN. Um, the, the UN struggles because what it symbolizes to some governments is, sort of, is, is anathema, so, so, so being the UN actually can backfire on a peacemaker terribly. So now you have situations like in Darfur, for example, where the UN envoy is also an au envoy so has a sort of regional identity as well right harriet martin thank you very much for joining us pleasure thank you uh, the other side of this is that we do look around and at the moment we are looking around particularly in afghanistan and if you listen to harriet she's she's not a she's not being sort of pessimistic mike clark but you do get a sense that there is no way through this one 
There is no way, especially when you put a hundred and something thousand troops in there, and you've got to think, we cannot take those troops out until politically it's okay for us to do it, and therefore there is some sort of settlement. That's right, and you, you have to be prepared to live with the consequences uh, until the moment may be right. I mean, think about what seemed like a very intractable conflict in the Lebanon um, during the uh, 1980s. Eventually, there's an exhaustion sets in, and then the moment can be right to, to patch something together which you hope will develop. The same thing happened in former Yugoslavia, in Bosnia and Croatia. Mm. Um, after five years of really vicious, bitter war, mm. everyone was exhausted and, want, and were looking for a settlement, as Harriet said. Everyone then wanted to come to the table in one way or another. We're not, we're not at that stage in Afghanistan yet. And yeah. the, the military believe we can get to that stage quickly, but I'm not sure we can. Right. The trouble John. in the Middle East is that there's no sign of any exhaustion on the part of Israel. It's prepared to sit it out and defy uh, <coughs> the right. United States. Mm. Um, Obama made it clear he wanted a freeze on the settlements, not just on the West Bank, but on East Jerusalem. He backtracked on that, and Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, can just go on playing for time. But this is, this is another important aspect of this, isn't it, I mean, Eric Grove? And that is that in Israel's case, you have not simply a state, but a peoples who have been on a war footing since 1948. That's very true. And, and therefore, they are not going to be so easy to come by a, a, an agreement. Exactly right. Especially when it's Jerusalem and the territories. And, and, and you and the also territory. have in Parliament, uh, perhaps we ought to be, you know, there's a debate about proportional representation in Britain. You have a Parliament where quite extremist parties have a lot of, a lot of power. Now, they have the, power or they're... Or they're they can of, negate. The, the they foreign can minister is a, is a case in point. Exactly right. And in, fact, and in fact, you tend to find this tends Israel towards... Um, um, Extremes. Now there have been there, have, there was a good example of back-channel diplomacy, the Oslo process. Because I know the person that I was associated with in Britain was quite c concerned to try to get a back-channel process going, and he was kind of preempted by his friend, uh, the uh, uh, Norwegian Prime Minister, who created the Oslo process, and you got an agreement. And what happened? The people who signed up to the person who signed up to the agreement was assassinated in typical Israeli fashion, and therefore you know, and therefore the whole thing trundles on. But there are possibilities for back channels. There are certain people who are quite good at arranging this, sometimes in government, sometimes outside. You can get people talking on the back channel and sometimes it can work. There is another, and there's a bigger side of this, is that, for example, if you, if you take um, uh, China and you've got a, a conflict between, say, China and elements in Tibet... You have conflict between official China, Han China, and the Uyghurs. Why not just let them get on with it? Why mm. say we've got to have a peace yeah, process? Some, sometimes you can say, well, the, the more humanitarian thing to do would be to allow the winner to win. Because if you have a peace process, it can prolong the agony and more people, you might argue are killed and made refugees as a result. Now, you can never prove it one way or the other because you can't repeat the experiment. But there is <coughs> a respectable argument that says give war a chance. Sometimes conflicts are based on misunderstandings. If they are, then this kind of diplomacy can work. If they're not based on misunderstandings, then, as we've just heard, mm. one side has to win. Mm. It's a terrible thing to think you've got to clear the air, and I'm mm. thinking, of, uh, thinking of Russia and Georgia. Uh, just, just, just a couple yeah. of years ago. I, mean, I think ultimately you, the, the outside world has got to say if we were to intervene, if we get involved in this, can we do so in a way that makes it better? Or do we not and have better the power? Better for us as well. Better, mm. better for us. But do we not have the power?
power to actually influence this in the direction we would like to go. And if we don't have the power, I think we just have to hold our noses and, and let history take its course. Unless the people have got oil, of course, and then we have a direct interest. That's important. But also, in, actually, in Georgia, what the Americans did was, was, was extremely interesting. They sent two-thirds of the Sixth Fleet. I think all of it at one point. Well, they are paying all the officers for a start, weren't they? Yes, and they also demonstrated to the Russians thus far and no further. It was all kept rather quiet, which is the best kind of diplomacy. Yeah. I mean, can I just mention that, I mean, I mean hardly anybody's going to bother to go to it, but um, the Ouijas are, are particularly interesting people. They're having a heck of time. Shia versus Sunni, yeah, in China, Ouija versus Han. But there's a meeting about it all here in London. If you happen to be coming through London, look it up. Worth going. World Uija Congress. Would you believe there was a World mm-hmm. Uija Conference? Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress, there is one. Uh, I suppose. And, and it happens in London. It's, yes. an, it's an indication mm. of the sort of city mm. London is. Yes. That something like that happens here. Mm. Yeah, well, look, I mean, look well, at the always place. has it, been. I mean, uh, the, the Algerians, the, uh, sure. the Guineas. Uh, I mean, this is where they come and do their back channel diplomacy. Yeah. You know, it's only when it's a public diplomacy. I always thought that Geneva was 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 exactly for that, writing funny novels yes. and having <laughs> and having conferences. I like Cuba, I think, comes under those local difficulties, doesn't ah. it? Uh, well, it does, isn't it? Where since 1959, since Batista was thrown out, yes. the Americans, how was it, 670 something attempts the CIA? Mm. I mean, this chap in, in 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 Yemen thinks he's going to get away with it. Forget the it. One, He's all right. The, the CIA Russian, are doing it. He'll be okay. The one Russian victory in the Cuba crisis, and it was a significant mm. one, yeah. uh, although obtained it to great potential risk, was to stop an American invasion for the next decades. And it succeeded, and the Americans haven't even tried. And uh, therefore, Why would they? Well, they were thinking of doing it. I mean, after all, Cuba was effectively an American colony at certain times. But there the were no the peacemakers the there. That's what, uh, mm. My point is there, there wasn't an attempt to make peace. Mm. You had... Khrushchev in the Kremlin, you have uh, Jack Kennedy in, in the White House. And in Havana. And, and these two guys, and eye, the people who were eyeballing were, in fact, it was Khrushchev and Kennedy. And it's exactly what Mike was talking about. You know, if there's something going on, if it's in our interest... But Castro, yes, exactly, and Castro felt rather let down by Khrushchev, but Castro survived, and Castro has survived, and his regime has survived. 62 is very dangerous, quite extraordinarily dangerous, but it's a very simple crisis. Two leaders, two military issues over one pretty irrelevant island. Um, Although with, one with mi- missiles in it, it wasn't irrelevant. No, no that's <laughs> the point. That made it relevant, but it, but it was not over a big ninety chunk miles of territory. Off it was not. It was. It was. It was about the rules of the game exactly. that the Cold War had evolved. Well, Amer- it was too close. Very simple. But yeah. America, exactly right too. But America felt particularly mm. concerned because, after all, the United States had heavy inverted commas mm. liberated Cuba in the in the Spanish-American mm. War. They, when was that? Congre- Eighteen ninety-eight. Mm. And it passed the Platt Amendment, mm. which stated that it we could were intervene. Doing the Boer War, then, we? Intervene. Yes, it could intervene in Cuba any time mm. it wanted to. Therefore, having Cuba mm. doing something against the will of the United mm. States was a tremendous mm. slap in the face. It's like Ireland going communist mm. for Britain. But the point being is that nobody, I still say, nobody has ever tried mm. to negotiate in the sense that we understand it with Castro. That's correct. Yeah. And that's mm. the f- fascinating part of it, except people have come out of Cuba, they've mm. gone to Florida, they've become a big election uh, yeah, that's block. part of the problem. But there have been delegations. There uh, have been congressional delegations that have come and gone, but really got very little progress. And so from mm. the uh, and the mafia. Mm. But John, you're you're a, you're a, um, a, a Havana uh, visitor. No, I've what's stopped th- smoking cigars. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, what's this? You you were talking about the other day about the white ladies. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. The, white the ladies, ladies in Havana. white uh, are very brave indeed. There are 25 of them. And what are they? 
Most of them are wives or mothers of men that have been held in detention in Cuba, most of them since 2003, and they paraded down the Fifth Avenue of Havana, um, not quite like New York's Fifth Avenue because it's full of potholes and you've got to mind that you don't sprain your ankles. Nice old cars, then. Was this, is, is talking about Manhattan or talking about Havana? Uh, in Havana. Yeah. And, and uh, it was... A, a very brave demonstration that despite the change from Fidel to Raul Castro, his brother, two years ago, uh, the regime is still as stern and unyielding as ever. In fact, it was you know, highlighted by the death of a hunger striker, Orlando so Zapata Tumaya, who just died and that was the end of it. So what will happen to the white ladies? Well, the white ladies will keep on protesting, I think. There are over 2,000 people in detention and, in fact, there's a great deal of support welling up for them because Castro is unable to feed his people. So there are great they, they shortages see- in the capital at the moment. Uh, the, the whole sort of marketing of tomatoes uh, was was ruined because they couldn't get to uh, Havana and bread is sometimes unavailable in the shops. John, we've got 35 seconds. Mm. I'm very concerned about our man in Dubai, the foreign office man in Dubai. I mean, in in, in the budget uh, thing, they said we're going to cut their allowances. I mean, these poor devils are being... No, no, no. It's an annual review of what is called the Compensation for Living Abroad and it's uh, worked out on the basis of security, climate, uh, difficult... To cultural conditions and believe it or not in Dubai uh, our man is regarded as being in a tough posting but equally in Karachi for example you get £26,000 a year because of the difficulties of operating in, in a place like Karachi or in Broadcasting mm. House listen thank you that's the John Dickey show um, we're going actually thank you to Michael Clark to John Dickey and to Eric Grove and don't forget listen next week Wednesday the 14th of April for the British Forces Broadcasting Service news special when the defence spoke from all three main parties will be debating defence issues here on Radio 2, BFBS Radio 2 at 6pm, that's on, on Wednesday oh, we'll be back here at the same time next week on BFBS Radio 2 at 4 o'clock UK time uh, until then mm-hmm. and always I'm Christopher Lee Mary, mm-hmm. Mary's in the hut mm-hmm. Foot Drap with Christopher Lee.